The Laura Murphy Show, episode 24. Welcome to The Laura Murphy Show, the podcast that analyzes financial markets from the perspective of Austrian economics and Nelson Nash's infinite banking concept. Listen and learn as your hosts, Robert Murphy and Carlos Lara, explain how you can be part of building the 10%. Welcome, everyone, to another scintillating episode of The Lara Murphy Show. I'm one half of the hosts, Robert Murphy, and with me, as usual, is Carlos Lara. How are things in Nashville, Carlos? They're good, Bob, but now I've got the situation you had a couple of weeks ago. I've got a major thunderstorm coming over, over here, over Nashville, so if, if we hear thunder at this end, that's what that is. And it could be, folks, a metaphor for the broader economy. Who knows? <laughs> well, let me apologize. I have a bit of a, I don't know if it's a cold or allergies or what, but there's been some some phlegm or something going on. Uh, ever since I got back, I was in Argentina for several days down there at the uh, Catholic University in Rosario for an Austrian economics conference. Let me take a moment to plug the Laura Murphy report because there's several economists down there who uh, I got on board to do interviews. So every month in the Laura Murphy report, we have an interview with either an academic or someone from the financial sector who's into Austrian economics, uses it in his or her practice. And uh, what's coming up in the next issue is going to be an interview with an Austrian economist who works in Venezuela. So you're not going to want to miss that one. As you can imagine, I, I asked him about the, uh, you know, the inflation and the price controls and just more generally, do the educated people in Venezuela, do they understand how the government's policies are causing these problems or do they really not know? Do they think it's like the, the fall in oil prices? So there's going to be there. So you don't want to miss that stuff. If you have not been uh, reading the Lara Murphy Report, there's several free issues. Go to the website. Again, our website is lara-murphy.com. So lara-murphy.com. And you'll see at the top there, there's a tab for the, um, the Lara Murphy Report. And you can see some free issues. Now, what are we talking about For this episode, well, a few days ago, Carlos sends me this Bloomberg article. The title is, Bernstein, Passive Investing is Worse for Society Than Marxism. So this is the August 23rd, 2016 Bloomberg article. The author of the article is a Mr. Luke Kawa, that's K-A-W-A. We'll, of course, link to this from the show notes page. This, again, is episode 24. So let me uh, just summarize the article, and then I'll ask Carlos, you know, what, why did he send it to me, and, and, and what, was, what did he have in mind? And incidentally, I had other people independently email me this thing, so this is definitely something that caught people's attention. So the article is just a summary of this research note that came out of the research and brokerage firm Sanford C. Bernstein & Company. Okay, so the Bernstein is the name of this brokerage firm. The author of the actual note is an uh, in Inigo Fraser Jenkins, and he's the head of global quantitative and European equity strategy for the firm. And so the note is actually titled, The Silent Road to Serfdom, Why Passive Investing is Worse Than Marxism. So what they're lamenting in this note is the transition and how um, a lot of people are pulling their money out of managed funds, right? So, so funds where 
there are people who are watching the markets and they're making adjustments to what the clients are invested in based on what they think is going to be better going forward. And then they earn fees for that, that those management services. And so a lot of people are looking at the returns they've been getting in funds like that compared to uh, what are called passive funds where there is no quote expert in charge. It's just a fund that's set up to mimic the broader market or to, you know, to mimic oil stocks or something, you know, there's, there's various funds that are set up where there's no expertise involved. They're just saying, Hey, I want something that for example, mimics the S and P 500. And so there might be what's called an exchange traded fund or an ETF that is composed of things to try to make it perform the same way the broader S&P 500 does. So if you don't really care about trying to pick individual winners and losers, you just say, hey, let me match the performance of the S&P 500. You put your money in one of these things. And so the fees are a lot lower because there's no, quote, expert in charge managing this stuff. So the people um, from this firm writing this note they are lamenting this trend away from active fund management into passive fund management because they're saying, hey, if too many people did this, it would undermine capitalism itself. Right? And so the, the theory is that a capitalist system, you, know, you need to have people channeling capital into those sectors or those outlets where the return is going to be greater. And so there has to be this sort of role allocating capital. And so the note, you know, this this line about where does the Marxism come from, is they're saying that. Um, so here, this is a, an actual quote from the from the note saying, the commonality between both active market management and the Marxist approach is that in both cases there are a set of agents trying, at least in principle, to optimize the flows of capital in the real economy. Okay, so again, just so you're not getting lost, this Fraser Jenkins who wrote this note, he's saying. Under true capitalism with active market management where you've got experts trying to pick the best stocks and then you know get their clients' money into those stocks and in in out of the stocks that are going to be dogs, or even in Marxism where you've got the, quote, experts trying to steer social capital into those factories and so on, where you know the, the experts think, oh, this is going to be the best place to put society's resources for our citizens, there you've got some mechanism by which – People with expertise are channeling resources to where they think they're going to do the most good. In contrast to both how this person thinks capitalism should operate and even Marxism, he's saying with passive fund management, there's no one even trying to do that. There, there's, there's not even a shred or, a, or a, a tip of the hat to somebody trying to figure out which companies are going to overperform or, or better perform and which ones are not. You're just If you're just trying to like match the S&P 500, you're not – analyzing individual companies you're not saying which ones are you know running their their operations effectively and so on or which ones are in markets that are expanding you don't care you're just saying no no i want to just have equal exposure to all the stocks and i just want to um, have my my portfolio rise and fall with the broader market so that's the sense in which this person is perhaps somewhat provocatively arguing that passive fund management is even worse than marxism they're they're saying that um, at least with Marxism, inefficient though it may be, at least there's an attempt to channel capital into the best uses. Whereas with if so, maybe put it to you this way: in the limit, if everybody just put their money into passive funds, then how would there be any response in stock prices to the actual performance of companies? 
I think that's that's maybe one way to see where, where these authors are coming from is that in the grand scheme, if literally nobody's out there analyzing companies and trying to buy stocks of companies that are going to do well and sell the stocks or short the stocks of companies that are going to do bad, then we wouldn't think stock prices would have anything to do with actual performance. And so wouldn't that somehow cripple the operation of capitalism, right? So that's the big picture of, of what this note is suggesting. And then what's even a little bit uh, scarier is that they then go on in this note to advise lawmakers and regulators, quote, may wish to consider the broader benefits of a functioning active asset management industry to society as a whole so that when policy initiatives are undertaken, they do not explicitly undermine active management, end quote. So there, what they're trying to say is, hey, government officials, you really it's in your interest, it's in society's interest to make sure that we active fund managers stay in operation and keep earning fees from our clients. And so let's uh let's not just be asleep at the wheel here while all of our, our revenues get get siphoned away and people move their money into the into the passive funds. And so that that's the now they're not actively calling for government subsidies. They're doing it the flip way saying let's not set up policies that encourage this anti-social trend of of moving of people moving their money out of actively managed funds and into passive funds. Okay, so there's the the summary of the article, and uh, let me turn it over to you here, Carlos. And, and so, what, why did you why did you want to talk about this? And, and what were your initial thoughts? Well, I wanted you to review the article for sure for the re- the reason that uh, that you've just explained to everybody. You're able to lay out exactly what what that article is trying to to say and um, uh, you use the right word when you said it, the authors are lamenting the fact that there's more and more money moving into you know passing passive investments in other words people are moving in the direction of wanting to manage their own money simply because manage money is turning out to be very expensive to do and the returns aren't coming in the way they they thought by giving it to professionals. Now, um, uh, as I was reading that article and why I sent it to you, Bob, was because uh, I remember recently as I was doing research on the Department of Labor Act that recently came out, which uh, is very tied to ERISA and uh uh, in doing that research, I, I realized that there was over $25 trillion, you know, invested and managed by managers uh, that all have to do with retirement money. And I guess I hadn't realized until I did that research how much money is involved there. And one of the reasons the Department of Labor was stepping up the way it was and trying to you know, change some of the rulings there is that some of that money is coming out of the, out of the markets. And, and there's, you've got all these financial professionals that are moving people out of the markets in their, in their uh, tax-qualified plans and moving it mostly into the individual retirement accounts which are also part part of the uh, uh, the government program, but there's the, the the 
the Department of Labor doesn't have near the oversight that it does in some of the other uh, plans within this big pool of money. So I concluded in my research that it looks like the regulators were coming in here to try to, to stop this money coming out of the markets. Because what I'm seeing is that that money is coming out of the markets. Now, just yesterday, I saw another report that was quite alarming, and I hadn't realized, but there is a, a ton of money that's now coming out of hedge funds. And, and they were saying that just, just this past month, there was $25 billion that came out of hedge funds. And the month prior, we had an equal amount. $23 billion came out. And so the article was referencing the hedge fund industry as being a beleaguered industry because the size of the numbers coming out of the, the hedge funds are, are, are of, of such massive amounts. Uh, we haven't had that kind of money coming out since the 2008 financial crisis. So... What we know about hedge funds is that they do charge some of the highest fees in the money management business. And so right now they're coming into a lot of criticism because they're charging these huge fees and yet the, the customer's not getting the return. That on an industry-wide basis, the funds, the hedge funds, have returned this year 1.2%. And this is the, the numbers they're, they're posting out through July of this year. And so uh, we've got the S&P 500 index running at 7.6%. Uh, so as you can see, the returns for the way the market is going are just not there. And so that just tells a story that people are coming out of the markets. And of course... These uh, exchange-traded funds that you just mentioned, Bob, that's probably the newest innovation that's come out probably in the last decade or so. And uh, the thing about these ETFs is that they are investments that are built like a mutual fund, but they trade like individual stocks, and, and the thing about these ETF things is that it's, they don't have the fees that mutual funds have. And, of course, mutual funds are managed money where these ETFs are not managed. They're managed by the individuals. There's even uh, better tax savings with these ETFs. Now, you do pay a brokerage fee every time you, you, know, you trade one of these, but overall, the fees are less in ETFs, and so there's more and more money now being managed by individuals, and they're pulling away from managed money by the professionals. And so uh, when I saw this article, I said, Bob, uh, you got to look at this. And it's talking about a comparison between capitalism and Marxism. But I really think that uh, what's going on here <laughs> is these authors are saying, hey, managed money is going out the door. Somebody do something. Right. Um, I'm trying to find here. Unfortunately, they didn't close the quotation mark. So I'm reading this Bloomberg article 
and I want to say exactly what they're talking about, the efficient allocation point, but it's not clear when the uh, – so they have the open quotation marks, but they didn't close it. And so it's not clear when the, the, the note is ending and it's back to the Bloomberg author or vice versa. But in any event, it says uh, – so he, I'm going to read Fraser Jenkins notes that the rise of indexing should theoretically entail that stocks tend to move in the same direction more often and cites research indicating that, quote, if the correlation of stocks increases, then that impedes the efficient allocation of capital. That is, there isn't as big of a difference in capital expenditures on a sector-by-sector basis than what would be expected based on relative profit growth. Right, so let me um, just p- paraphrase that again. So the, these, this author is lamenting the fact that as more people, as Carlos is talking about here, have been moving their money out of these actively managed funds and into index ETFs, then if you know, think of it this way, if you've got... $10,000 that you entrusted to this mutual fund and there it's actively managed and the person is going to have you in growth stocks or something you know they're, they're going to be looking at individual company performance and try to keep your $10,000 in with a mixture of the companies of the individual stocks that that expert thinks are going to grow higher over the next 12 months or whatever and so then and if if, if conditions change well, then they might sell some of those stocks and get your money into different ones or whatever. And so every time they rebalance, you know, they might charge you a fee for that and so on. And, of course, they have to pay themselves money to make it worth their time to be studying the market so much and, and all that kind of stuff. In contrast, if you just put your money into an ETF that just tracks the S&P 500, then um, there's no there's no jockeying and shuffling back and forth between individual stocks. Right, you're just in the whole S and P 500 period, and so you're not buying some shares and selling other ones based on new information coming in, and so that's what this note is saying. That, well, gee, you know, don't we want there to be experts somewhere in the market economy that are studying individual companies and then making decisions that affect their stock prices uh, based on you know this new information as it becomes available? And it seems like if you're just passive investing. You're kind of like riding on the coattails of everybody else's research. You know, you're you're sort of being a free rider, and it's a smaller and smaller base of the experts doing the actual research, and everybody else is just following the crowd. And so, you know, this is this is unsustainable. That that's kind of the argument they're making. Um, well, I think at this point, maybe Carlos, you can talk a little bit about in in our book how privatized banking really works. We actually have a a discussion. And we're gonna we're gonna right now we're checking folks into seeing whether we can just make the particular chapter available as opposed to you're just pointing you to our to our whole book. If we can make the, the particular chapter available, we'll do that. Again, you're listening to episode twenty-four. If you go to the show notes description, you can see these links that we're talking about. Um but in any event, we talk about I think we call it the used stock market. And and this it's important to think through this to understand how does investing actually work in today's economy? And it's not so simple as to say that, oh, yeah, you're going to give your money to a, you know, an active fund manager, and then he's going to channel that into the companies that are growing and performing, and that's the way these companies get access to new capital and they can build more factories. and what, that Actually, that's not what's going on, and so let's, let's make sure you, you know how that works. So do you want to talk a little bit about that, Carlos? Oh, sure. Uh, 
By the way, I owe that that bit of insight on the used stock thing to the late Professor uh, Clarence Carson. Um, when he talked about that, and I combined it with my knowledge of securities and businesses, I just thought, well, he's absolutely correct about this. But anyway, the way the way to talk about this is to first of all begin by uh, making sure we all understand that the method for raising money uh, for businesses is through the corporation, right? So a corporation is an independent entity. Uh, it's really an agreement by individuals, and it's an agreement that's recognized by law. So um, corporations can then sell stock, and it's for the purposes of raising capital. Now, um, the liability of corporations is limited all right, it doesn't work like partnerships trying to raise capital. When a corporation, uh, the investors of a corporation are, have limited exposure, and it's only to the extent of the amount that they have invested in the, in the shares of stock. And that's a big attraction uh, for buying shares of stock. In other words, uh, if a corporation should go bankrupt, the investors in the shares of stock to that corporation can just walk away. In other words, it's not going to hurt their personal uh, pocketbook if that company goes down. Um, so if, a, if an individual is not, say, for example, an officer or a director of that corporation, I mean, individuals don't even have to worry about, well, what, what's what's... What does this corporation, what does this company sell? What does it produce? You know, you don't have to even pay as much attention to those things. Um, you're just mostly buying shares of stock in that, in that corporation. And, of course, the thing you're paying attention to in these, these corporations, if you're going to buy their shares of stock, is the bottom line. Are they profitable? So you're looking at the dividend per share that these uh, – these shares of stock will pay, and the price each share will bring uh, in the market. Those are the concerns that people have when they buy shares of stock. Now, we do know from previous discussions we've had on our podcast, that's another way for corporations to raise stock, and we've talked about that, and that's by, it's through bonds, to selling bonds. But I want to stick with just the selling of shares of stock for the moment. The point is that there's an awful lot of uh, selling of stocks today in the stock market. But there is a very strange phenomena that occurs when it comes to corporations and securities and the stock market. Because the phenomenon I'm talking about is that Americans uh, seem to think that the driving force behind corporations and American industry is the stock market. They more or less see the stock market when they're thinking in terms of the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or any of the other ex exchanges that we have in the United States or abroad, that when we see that stock prices are rising, 
that that must mean that the economy is doing fantastic and that when it's declining, the stocks are declining in price, that it means that the economy is not doing so well. Now, that, that's sort of a strange reaction when you stop and think about it because there's other things in our economy that go up in price and go down in price, and we don't react this way when we see those kinds of up and downs as we do with the stock market. And I think what we're seeing here is that the reason we pay so much attention to the, the rising and declining of, of the prices of stocks is because of the way it's communicated through the news media. The news media is really the one that's passing on this, what I think is misinformation about how the stock market actually functions. So the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, and these other exchanges, that's really all they are, folks. They're just exchanges. So what they're exchanging, and this is the point that uh, Professor Carson made, what they're really exchanging is used stock. That's what's being offered for sale is used stock. So it's not new stock or new issues of stock. When, when corporations issue new shares of stock, actual wealth is actually going to that corporation. And that's known as an initial public offering. But you have to remember that that's just a one-time event. And that, that's not necessarily happening in the stock market. There are, you know, there are certain uh, uh, firms that specialize in these initial public offerings and offer these new stocks for sale. And that money does go directly to the corporation. But when you talk about the New York Stock Exchange and the NASDAQ and any of these other exchanges, for all of the, the trading that goes on you know, every sin, single day, that, 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 that trading provides no capital whatsoever for American industry. And that's the big difference that we need to see. Yeah, let me just jump in here, Carlos, to make sure everyone's getting the point. So, and this is more just about basic education and making sure people are fully thinking through. I mean, if you, if you think it through yourself, you're going to see it. But until someone's walked you through this exercise, it might not have occurred to you that when you go and you you call up your broker and say, hey, you know what, I want to buy $1,000 worth of whatever, Google, or I want to buy three shares of this or what, well, maybe 10 shares of this company, whatever. What's happening there is the broker, you know, is taking your money and then going into the market and finding someone else who currently owns those shares and wants to sell them and then is giving them your the money. And then the, the ownership of those already issued shares of stock are just, you know, being transferred to a different owner, right? So it's not that the, that Google now has an extra $10,000 to go spend on doing research on driverless cars or something. It's what happened is the person who previously owned Google, those shares of the Google stock now has cash and has a few, you know, a smaller number of shares and you have less cash and a greater number of shares. It's not that Google just got more money in any way from that particular, from you deciding to buy Google stock. 
So that's the, the, the point that Clarence Carson was making. And so you can see you're in the used stock market when you're buying things on conventional exchanges. The one major exception, as Carlos has said here, is when a company has an initial public offering and you know they, they take the company public for the first time. And so those shares really are coming out of the marketplace for the first time as newly issued ones. Now, to be sure, having said all that, don't worry, I'm not suggesting that there's no role whatsoever for uh, speculators to be trying to study companies and so on and, and sell the stocks that they think are going to go down and and buy the shares of ones they think are going to appreciate. It is important. You do in a capitalist system, as Ludwig von Mises said, uh, Murray Rothbard one time asked him, is there a sharp dividing line between a very interventionist market economy versus outright socialism, you know, a planned economy. And Rothbard wasn't sure when he asked the question if Mises was going to have an answer, if he was going to say, ah, no, it's just kind of a spectrum. But Mises, to Rothbard's uh, perhaps surprise, did give him a crisp answer. And he said, yeah, the existence of a stock market. He said, if the government tolerates people privately owning the companies that own the means of production, the factories and the farmland and what have you, then that's capitalism, that you really can't, you know, it's not socialism if the government tolerates the existence of a stock market. So we, uh, you know, it's definitely a very important social institution, and it is important that those stock prices are meaningful. But the point we're making here, the somewhat modest point, is just to say don't think that when you call up your broker and say, oh, man, I just heard a tip from my brother-in-law and I want to get into this company by you doing that, you're not directly through that transaction putting more capital in the hands of the managers of that company so they can go build a factory. That, that's not how it works. Yeah, and here's another thing that's also kind of quirky, Bob, and that is that um, the people that buy uh, and sell stock, shares of stock, you know, they're frequently referred to as investors. I mean, this is, this is what we say, they're investors. But we, we must not forget that that's really all they're doing is they're buying and trading shares. That's, that's what their real motivation there is. Uh, they are looking perhaps maybe at the purchasing uh, the stock based on the return on the dividends. But really what they're really focusing on is the, the profit that they're going to make when the price rises on that share of stock that they bought, they bought. In other words, that whole principle of buy it low and sell it high. So in effect, to say if they're investors, when the focus is primarily on that one thing, it's, it's more like people are really speculating here. You know, it's, this is why most people that buy shares of stock, they love bull markets. Uh, because you know the price, you buy it at a certain price, and your hope is for the, the share stock to go up in price, and then you're going to sell it, you know, trade it in the marketplace, sell it, and make a profit. You see, and so uh, you know people that that buy that way, they're rewarded if they if their bets are correct. Obviously, if it goes in the other direction, I mean, they're they're punished. So. Uh, that, that's another thing to keep in mind here is that most of the buying and trading that's, that's done on these ex- exchanges is, is for you know, the exchange value of those shares of stock. Yeah, that's a great point. So <clears throat> I think we can even introduce another distinction. 
of the difference between saving and investing. Absolutely. And so, you know, there's different levels. And here, folks, let me be clear. We're talking more about the common parlance and describing things in everyday language because, you know, you turn in terms of pure economic theory, there's no such thing as a riskless act of saving. Like, even if you're holding a hundred dollar bill, you know, for one thing, the currency could collapse. So that's risky, or you could get mugged, or, you know, it could disintegrate in your hands because of some strange chemical reaction. Who knows? So, in pure economic theory, every act of action is a speculative move based on your anticipation of the future. So everything's speculation in that broad sense. But here we mean in terms of drawing distinctions that are useful in everyday life. And I think it's very important to distinguish between genuine saving versus investing versus speculating. And so what Carlos has just talked about there is if you want to say there's a distinction between investing and speculating – if you're buying a share of stock because you think it's going to go up in the next six months and you're planning on selling it once you've locked in that capital gain, then there you're buying for speculative purposes. If instead you study a company and you're like, wow, they got a really good product here or they've got, you know, uh, the, the researchers, I've seen these guys, there was a documentary on them. And I think over the next 20 years, this company's really going to capture a lot of market share because they're on the next there. You would be investing in that company. But if instead, you know, you're, let's say, buying into a dividend-paying whole life policy, we would think that's more of genuine saving, where it's not really that you're really making, you know, broad entrepreneurial forecasts. You're just trying to put your money somewhere, your wealth somewhere in a, in a relatively safe uh, place for holding. So those are some of the distinctions that we get into in our book, How Privatized Banking Really Works. If you haven't read that, we strongly encourage you to do it. It's still relevant even in today's economic environment. Uh, let me also mention while we're talking about this stuff that, <laughs> as Seinfeld would say, not that there's anything wrong with it, right? So when we say somebody going in and buying a stock at 100 because they think pretty soon it's going to go up to 110 and that's speculation, that's great. I, I want there to be people dedicating their careers to doing that and you know buying all kinds of computers and subscribing to Bloomberg terminals and and following all kinds of newsletters and and so forth and going in and selling when they think the thing is going to go down and and buying when they think it's going to go up and so on that's great and and I'm going to link to I have an article called the social function of stock speculators that was at mises.org way back in 2006 and I think that lays out the case pretty succinctly as to why people like that are good for society that if you've got experts who who think something's going to happen and the rest of us don't realize it, you want those people going in and buying and selling and moving prices so that we're, the rest of us aren't caught flat-footed, right? If there's going to be a, a war in the Middle East and that's going to make oil prices shoot up to $200 a barrel and a few insiders right now know that that's coming, you want them to go out and start trading on that. That starts moving prices in the right direction. They start buying oil futures. It pushes up oil prices. It makes oil companies start, you know, looking for other sources of oil. It makes people start conserving oil right now as oil gets more expensive. That's exactly what you want society to do if, in fact, there's going to be an interruption in the supply of oil in the next six months. So this is all good stuff. But notice you don't want the whole American public to be engaged in speculation if what they think they're doing is putting the retirement savings somewhere. And so that's really the kind of thing that Carlos and I are concerned about and what we focus on in our book is to say, let's not mix these, these different social functions up. Yeah, there should be a group of people 
who are experts, speculators, and they have money on the line. And if, if rich people want to entrust some of their wealth to them and let them go ahead and run away with it and do what they want, and if they if they pick them well, then they, they share in the profits and so on, that's great. And I think that that should be, you know, that's an important part of a capitalist economy. But what's happened now is because of monetary inflation from the Federal Reserve and all sorts of other interventions, the general public thinks that by putting their money into a managed mutual fund that's very heavily based on equities, that that's the same thing as saving for their retirement years. When no, that's that's crazy. So I don't know. Do you want to respond to that stuff, Carlos? Well, well, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, I think there's absolutely good reason for there to be professional speculators, professional managers that know how to do this and move in and out of the markets very quickly. But the average person uh, who's basically wanting to save for retirement, you know, they can't they can't move this fast and they don't have that kind of knowledge to do it. So the problem we have today, Bob, is so many Americans have been lulled into thinking that the stock market is where to be. And because of the tax qualified plans that we have now, where the underlying asset are mutual funds and they are tied to the stock market, uh, individuals who think they're saving for retirement actually have a lot of their money in the stock market. And when the stock market gets to levels like where they are today, um, you can see that the stock market can become very emotionally charged. I mean, any news about the stock market, I mean, could, you know, could really can make people's, you know, heart stop sometimes. Um, and so uh, it's it can be... Uh, it's not a good place to put, you know, uh, money that you're trying to save for retirement at all. It's not. It's not for that. Uh, you know, back during the crash of '29, when this kind of thing happened, the problem there was that people started borrowing on credit to buy stocks, and of course, you know, when the stock market crashed. You know, they couldn't get out fast enough, you know, the, then they had to pay the piper because they borrowed the money to invest in stocks. Now, people today still have that same opportunity. Um, but it reminds me of what happened during the housing market when it crashed. It was a very similar thing. People were borrowing from the equity on their homes to buy more more real estate, and they were flipping these houses. And it was great, as, as you know, as long as the, the market was up. But man, if they didn't get out in time when the mar- stop, stop, uh, the real estate market crashed, they got caught, and there were some very severe losses there. So uh, I, I think you're right that uh, uh, there's room for the the money manager and the speculator, and that money can be made, but I, it should not be for people that are trying to save for retirement. Uh, it's uh, investing or speculating in the stock market is, is not the same thing as, as saving. And even in terms of the intermediate, if there were someone who wanted to just you know be exposed to equities because they fear price inflation and they say, oh, gee, I can't just be in fixed income. I want, but they don't have any particular feel for, you know, oh, yeah, I really think energy stocks are going to do well. Or, you know, I don't I want to sh- short the tobacco companies because I think there's a major court ruling that's good. You know, they're just saying, no, I want to be exposed to uh, U.S. equities. Well, that's beautiful. That's an, e- an ETF index fund that just tracks the S&P 500 or whatever they want to track. 
that's great for a person like that. You don't want them to have to pay extra fees to management who are then going in and studying individual stocks because if the if the point of them doing that is they just want to largely protect themselves from price inflation by having some equities in their portfolio, well then yeah, they, they don't want to be paying on top of that to have somebody managing and picking individual stocks. So there's a place for everything here. And this notion that, oh my gosh, if more and more people keep going into passive funds, then what role does that leave for the quote experts? Well, I think the solution is not to run to the government and, and say, hey, make sure you do something about this. But instead, and in fairness, the authors of the note didn't explicitly say that, even though they tiptoed up to it. The, the solution is, OK, well, these active fund managers better start outperforming the passive funds. And, uh, you know, there's the, the people like Warren Buffett or whatever have a good track record. So people you trust their money with him and he's not perfect, but he's consistently over the course of his career outperformed, quote, the market. So it, it's uh, so in any event, it's it's just funny because, you know, there's lots of statistical studies out there. If I find a good one, I'll include it on the show notes page for this, but I, right now I'm not finding a great one here as I look around, just showing that w- why these no-load funds and then even more now, uh, more recently, these, these ETFs that just are indices, why they're, they're so popular. Because a lot of these funds where you're paying active fees to management, once you take that into account, it's not actually such a good deal after all, especially when you factor in just how volatile the stock market has been over the last few decades with these wild crashes, you know, ups and then downs. And so it's uh, we, we've sort of come full circle, and you can see why these there's a, there's a place for each type of person. And again, uh, if, if you're someone who wants to save, and we should probably also mention too, Carlson and I are using this term retirement just to try to connect with the average listener. But if you start reading Nelson Nash, you're going to find out pretty quickly he thinks that's a silly term. That you know, this idea that once you get to be a certain age, all of a sudden you stop earning an income and you just go play golf. Nelson thinks that's crazy, and that's you know this this artificial invention of modern society. And that uh, you know, really productive people who know what's up, they're going to keep generating income and so forth. And I, I imagine Carlson and I are certainly going to follow that model. I can't see uh, stopping the Laura Murphy show at any time. I hope you feel the same way, Carlos, or else it'll just be the, the Murphy show. <laughs> no, I absolutely do. I think, uh, I, I think the main thing that, that I do want to say about this is that um, you cannot time the stock market with your retirement. There's no way to do it. Um, if you have discretionary income, if you have risk capital and you want to speculate, uh, I think it's great. But but for those people that are trying to save for their retirement, just you have to remember, you cannot time your retirement with the stock market. Uh, And so if you have a lot of your money invested in the stock market and it's your day to retire and all of a sudden a crash occurs, you're not going to be able to retire. Exactly right. So in closing, let me push you if you don't normally do this if you just listen to the podcast but don't actually go to the website let me encourage you to break that habit for this particular episode again this is episode 24 so you want to go to lara and lara is spelled l-a-r-a so lara-murphy.com and once you get there you're going to see uh the toolbar and you go to the the podcast one you can see all the archives of these and go to episode 24 you're going to see a link to chapter four of the Lara Mer- or sorry of, of our book how privatized banking really works. I just got confirmation we're going to be able to put that up there. 
And I'm going to link you to the social function of stock speculators. That's an article I wrote back in 2006. If you want to see more careful detail, how why is it good that you got people out there who buy low and sell high if they, if they actually predict the future correctly? And I'll, I'll walk you through why that's a good thing socially. Of course, we'll link this Bloomberg article that we've been discussing. And I'm also going to give you a link to samples of the Laura Murphy report because, again, you're, you're not going to want to miss that. Uh, we're going to have a bunch of interviews with people in the next few issues that I met down at this conference in Rosario. And also, Carlos is still digging up new information as we speak uh, relating to banks in Europe. And you're, you're not going to want to miss this stuff. It's kind of information that it's the same flavor of what you hear on the podcast, but much more in-depth, a lot more um, you know specific numbers and so forth to, to inform you. So with having said all that, we thank you for tuning in to yet another episode, and we'll see you guys next time. You've just finished another episode of The Laura Murphy Show. Be sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues to do your part in building the 10%. The Laura Murphy Show is provided with the understanding that the staff and contributors of lauramurphy.com are not here and engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult your own professional tax, legal, or financial advisor. Thank you.